Welcome to the Marvelous Madams Podcast. I'm your host, Madam Chris, handling the show solo while my co-host Amy is on a self-care sabbatical. But I am still burdened with the glorious purpose of talking all things Marvel. Today, I'm discussing Hawkeye Episode 5. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the finale. Now, there's only one way to start this week's episode. The big man is back. Tell me, guys, was I the only one who wasn't 100% sold that it was Vincent D'Onofrio in that grainy photo? Who else watched the credits to make sure Marvel didn't commit the unforgivable sin of recasting Wilson Fisk? More on the mean one, Mr. Fisk, later, because we have a lot to parse in episode 5, which definitely got back on solid footing after last week's stumble. Let's get into it. I have to begin with the woman who absolutely stole this episode, Florence Pugh. I love the character she's created in Yelena. She takes this performance so far beyond what's written on the page. We've seen comparatively little of Yelena in the MCU. Nonetheless, I can't picture anyone else playing her. This whole package, the accent, the syntax, the mannerisms and personality she brings to Yelena, it's just magnetic. And I love that the episode opened with her. This cold open was very reminiscent of Monica Rambeau's return from the blip on WandaVision. Even though Yelena was alone when she returned versus being in a busy hospital, it was just as intense, and those visual effects really enhanced the moment. And we get some important exposition here, too. In Black Widow, Yelena was freed from the mind control that essentially enslaved her. She could have just started a new life and pursued her own happiness. Instead, she's been tracking down other widows and giving them the mind control antidote, helping them through their waking, as she put it. This speaks volumes about Yelena's heart and her loyalty. And I think it shows that no matter what story she's been fed, in the end, this is not a woman who will be able to kill her sister's best friend. While I love everything about Yelena in this episode, I also found it somewhat frustrating because everything that Yelena's been doing, that's the Black Widow movie I wanted. Alas, I won't rehash my feelings on that movie here. If you want to hear Amy try to refute my criticisms, go listen to our Black Widow episode from August. Sticking with Yelena, let's move on to this long sequence between Yelena and Kate in Kate's apartment. For me, this was hands down the best part of the episode. Pew's performance here is incredible. Yelena is simultaneously scary, hilarious, realistic, and more likable than any trained killer has the right to be. And I should also mention, that I have determined who Yelena's birth family is. She was already a carbon copy of my sister-in-law, and then she filled that pot of mac and cheese with hot sauce, as I have watched my husband do many times. So Christmas Day, I shall be talking to my mother-in-law about a third child who must have been abducted from the hospital. Anyway, this scene between Kate and Yelena really transcends the show. This is one of those moments where, as a woman, I point and say, this. This right here is why representation matters. Because it's clear a woman wrote this episode. Yelena and Kate are speaking to each other on a lot of levels, and one of them is just as women. The way they blended a vaguely threatening interrogation 
with Girl Time was masterful. And credit goes to Haley Steinfeld, too. Florence Pugh owns this exchange, but Steinfeld is right there with her, making Kate very off-balance and intimidated by a woman who could kill her without breaking a sweat. And even though these two women are on opposite sides of a war, for now, mutual respect shines through. And it goes beyond skill. They respect each other's very existence. So often, we still see women tear each other down on screen, even if they're on the same side. So this was beautiful to watch. What I also love is that Yelena and Kate are so similar. What I also love is that Yelena and Kate have a lot in common. First of all, they're both right. Clint did save the world, but so did Natasha. It was a team effort. And neither of them has the full story on Clint either. Kate sees him through rose-tinted glasses, whereas Yelena sees him through enough blood to wrap around the world. Very Russian indeed. Yelena brings us around to Marvel's bread and butter, the idea that we shouldn't ignore our hero's flaws, that we must acknowledge when they are at fault. In this, I'm totally with her. As we've said many times on the podcast, Tony is the best example of this. He did a lot of good. He sacrificed himself to save humanity. But he still had a lot of blood on his hands and caused a lot of the very problems he ended up solving. You also have to respect Yelena's brutal honesty with Kate. She makes no bones about it. She's here to kill Clint. But I think she divulges more than she intended to when she admits that someone hired her for the job. This was a chink in Yelena's armor, and Kate planted a little seed of doubt in her mind about her employer. She's been fed a version of the truth that suits her employer's needs, and we assume for now that's Val. Not only that, I think this is the story Yelena needs right now. She won't want to accept the truth, that Natasha voluntarily left her and the relationship they were just rebuilding. But in the end, I think she'll trust Natasha's judgment about Clint and also realize that he has never considered himself a hero. As he said, he's a weapon, just like Natasha and just like Yelena. That will be enough to keep Clint alive. And the last thing I'll say about this scene is that as funny as the mac and cheese bit was, it was also kind of heartbreaking. I can't speak for the rest of the world, but most Americans my age grew up on box mac and cheese. I know I did. It was a quick, everyday food for us, but Yelena treats it like a delicacy. It's a very poignant reminder of the childhood she never had. Now let's move on to Kate, who I no longer want to murder. Last week I said that if the writers wanted to get me back on Kate's side, it would take some heavy lifting. Well, they certainly put their backs into it. It was indeed their intention to have us hit a rock bottom of sorts with Kate before she hit it herself. And it's really a brilliant bit of writing. As pissed as I was at Kate in Ep 4, I couldn't be pissed with the devastated, broken girl who just wants her mom. She's hurt, she's ashamed, she's crushed. And what struck me most was how young she looked, especially sitting on her bed with her mother, who we will get to. Kate feels like she's failed not only herself, not only Clint, but her father. And that's what this all comes down to for her. And it's so interesting 
how we have a number of characters in this show who are driven by the idea of honoring loved ones. It's a powerful theme that a lot of people can relate to, and that's what they wanted us to do with Kate in this episode. Relate. Now back during our WandaVision series, we had talks about how the show was almost interactive, as if the writers were playing a weekly game with the audience. And I'm having this same feeling with Hawkeye, but in a different way with Kate. Steinfeld's performance and the careful writing of this episode pulled me out of my 34-year-old self and back into my early 20s in a way I can't recall other shows or movies doing. And I realized Kate annoyed me so much in episode four, in part because I was looking in a mirror. I certainly didn't destroy any clock towers my senior year of college, but I did my share of monumentally stupid things and was just as immature and obnoxious as Ms. Bishop. This is a real coming-of-age moment for Kate, and I applaud the writers for the huge chance they took with the character last week. That took serious guts, but it paid off, at least with me. I feel a kinship with Kate that I hadn't felt before, and I look forward to seeing the woman she becomes over time. So with that said, I give Kate credit for not giving up, for not leaving Clint to deal with this whole mess on his own. And she doesn't act recklessly this time. She tracks his phone and keeps a safe distance from the action and ends up being Clint's white knight. Let's also take a minute and just acknowledge that moment. A young woman coming to the rescue of a middle-aged white man who was getting his ass handed to him by a deaf woman of color amputee. It cannot be said enough. Representation matters. Now let's talk about Mr. Barton. When he first showed up at Grills' apartment, I was nervous. I was in no mood for more LARPing nonsense. But they got back on track with that too. In episode four, I thought they took the joke too far, forgetting that Grills and his friends are public servants, first responders with very dangerous jobs. I felt the characters weren't shown the proper respect, but I think this episode patched that up a little. We see Grills as a person, not a joke. He's willing to help a guy he barely knows, who might be putting him in danger, and he's doing it out of gratitude and that shared sense of public service. Now I'll get to Laura Barton shortly, but I have to say it now. If Laura was around, Lucky would be eating actual dog food and not pizza. Men, I swear you guys would die without us. Anyway, the writers did some rehabbing on Clint this episode too. Last week, all of his inner turmoil about Natasha and his family just felt off. It was clunky and too heavy-handed. But that scene at the Battle of New York Memorial got me teary all three times I watched episode five. I appreciated Clint removing his hearing aid, blocking out the city to give himself a private moment with Nat. And this is when we realized something important. Back in episode one, When Clint was majorly overcompensating with his kids trying to be dad of the century, it wasn't just about them. I do my best every day to earn what you gave me, he says to a ghost. Right now, Clint's a lot like someone who receives a life-saving organ transplant from a living donor. His sense of obligation to Natasha and her sacrifice 
has become the driving force of his life, for better or worse, and this is well executed. But we also know that obligation only extends so far. If Clint has to kill Yelena to protect his family, he will. And speaking of the Barton family, major props to Linda Cardellini for doing so much with so little screen time. I feel like whenever we're with Clint, Laura's presence is palpable because they're such a unit. If Amy heard me say this, I'd never hear the end of it, which is why I'll say it now. Laura and Clint's marriage reminds me in some ways of Wilson Fisk and his wife Vanessa. Those two were a match made in hell, but they were solid. They trusted each other, and they loved each other, just like Laura and Clint. Which she tells Clint here, I trust your judgment. Do what you have to do. That is trust and acceptance on a level most people will never understand. And Laura says as much. We're talking about life and death here, not buying a car without your spouse seeing it. I hope we get more backstory on Laura, along with some answers about this fucking Rolex, because that shit is keeping me awake at night. Now we come to our girl Maya, who, much like Kate and Yelena, only has one side of an important story. We don't see too much of her in this episode, but Alakwa Cox doesn't let that or her deafness get in the way of a great performance. She has incredible presence without uttering a word, using her face and her expressive hands to tell us everything we need to know about how she's feeling. After Clint summons her to the parking lot via carrier arrow, and kudos to directors Bert and Bertie on that one because I jumped out of my damn skin. Maya has the showdown she's been waiting for, but it doesn't go as she planned. When Clint takes her down and reveals his identity, Maya's face is a mosaic of emotion. Disbelief mixed with shock, mixed with regret for not killing him when she had him, and at the same time, a little mental face palming because, yeah, this was kind of obvious, kiddo. But Clint doesn't want to kill Maya. He just wants his family left alone. And then he cracks Maya's whole foundation, revealing that her father's murder was orchestrated by dear uncle. And after this, I think Maya makes a big mistake. She's running on emotion, that betrayal, and the realization that she and Clint are more alike than they are different. She wants answers. And her bullishness here reminds me of Mobius in episode four of Loki, when he pushes Renslayer for answers about Hunter C-20. The balance of power here is different, but I still think questioning Kazi about his absence the night of her father's murder was a mistake. Oh, and important note here. Upon further study and collaboration with several folks on Twitter, I declare Kazi's final and legal name to be Kit Cumberbloom. By questioning him, Maya tipped Kazi off, and I have no idea what he's going to do about this little development. But I think unless Maya banks some of that rage she's got going, she's going to run into serious trouble with dear old uncle. And now I'm also seeing Maya's whole relationship with Kazi in a new light. How much does he really care about her? How much of his friendship is just an act to cover his own ass? Time will tell. And now we come to a woman who could give the Riddler a run for his fucking money, Eleanor Bishop. Vera Farmiga is doing a fantastic job keeping this character such a mystery. Finally, we see Eleanor acting like a real mother at the beginning of this episode. When Kate comes home, bloodied and devastated, 
Eleanor is there to comfort and take care of her. And damn, she almost had me. But when Kate mentions Jack and Sloan Limited, and Vera Farmiga's eyes cut away so subtly, I caught myself and thought, oh, I see you, bitch. I see you. When Eleanor talks about life taking you on winding paths you never expect, I think she was talking about herself and whatever the hell she's into with Wilson Fisk. And I keep coming back to the same question. Does Eleanor really love her daughter? On one hand, you can argue that Eleanor doesn't care about Kate because she's basically facilitated Kate being in constant danger for the past week. On the other hand, we have no idea what Eleanor's been up to behind the scenes and who she might be giving orders to. And this might also fill the cop plot hole. If you've seen Daredevil, you'll recall that Wilson Fisk had plenty of cops in his pocket back in the day. So it's possible that the cops backed off of Kate on Fisk's orders. And did Eleanor even do the same for Clint because she wants him dead, not in prison? And now that we know Eleanor and Fisk are in cahoots, I'm wondering if Bishop Security is a front or a major arm of Fisk's empire. There are so many threads that need to be tied together in the finale, and let's not forget about Val's role in this mess, too. I certainly wouldn't say no to an appearance from the Queen Bitch. Now, while I'm not sure if Eleanor truly loves her daughter, it's safe to say she doesn't give a flying fuck about Jack. And damn it, I've softened on that mustache-twirling bastard, and it's all Tony Dalton's fault for being so charismatic. I don't think Jack's entirely innocent, but it's clear Eleanor made him the fall guy in whatever scheme she's up to with Fisk. I've never worked a day in my life, is the most honest thing anyone has said on this show. And Jack's reaction to his arrest is also telling. In his place, I would have pulled a Lee Harvey Oswald, going dead weight and screaming, I'm a patsy, to anyone who would listen. But Jack takes it all in stride, keeping calm and even agreeing with Eleanor on her decision to call the cops. He's just way too accepting of what he knows is a frame job, and there are a couple possible reasons for this. One, he really does love Eleanor and doesn't want to lose her once he corrects this little mix-up. But I think there's a better chance of Pizza Dog pooping sunshine and rainbows than that scenario being true. I'm partial to option two. Jack is a broke gold digger who wants Eleanor's money, and he's confident he can talk his way out of handcuffs and back into her good graces. Either way, I have one word for dear Jack. La-hoo, her And that leaves us with dear Uncle Wilson. There's just no way to know what kind of mindset or general state Wilson Fisk is currently in, because we don't have a vital piece of information. We know that Fisk wasn't blipped. After all, he gave the order to have Maya's father killed during those five years. But we don't know if Vanessa was blipped. If Fisk lost her, look the fuck out, everybody. On top of that, we don't know if he and Eleanor are partners, or if she works for him. And the puzzle piece that keeps sticking out for me, why would Fisk or Eleanor want Clint Barton dead? And did they know Clint was Ronan? Because when Val showed Yelena Clint's picture in the Black Widow stinger scene, he was wearing the Ronin costume. So somebody knew. Oh boy, I'm going to have to break out the yarn to keep all these connections straight. And I have yet to even mention Derek Bishop, who I was so sure was alive 
and now I think it's fertilizer. Between Hawkeye and Spidey, by Monday, my brain will be the consistency of Yelena's mac and cheese. And my last thought on this episode, Mr. D'Onofrio, it is good to see you again, sir. You were worth the wait. All right. With that five in the rear view, it's time to mention some of you good people listening and chatting with me on Twitter. In honor of Spider-Man No Way Home, which might just set a record for the number of British people pretending to be Americans, a big shout out to all of our UK listeners. Thank you for all your support. Miles, I don't think things are going to turn out well for your boy Jack. I have no doubt Fisk and Eleanor did an excellent job framing him. At Starsaber underscore 222, you had thought Jack had the connection to Uncle Wilson and that Eleanor was connected to Val. Looks like you're half right. Let me know what you're thinking now. A lot of people were showing Yelena love this past week by retweeting us. Thank you for that, because it really helps us gain visibility for the podcast. Just to name a few, Franco at Disney Vista, Manuel Valero, and Mr. Delvin Cox. Delvin is also the host of the Delvin Cox Experience. If you're looking for a podcast that explores and celebrates diversity, check out his show. Okay, a few last things to mention today. By the time this episode drops, many of you will have seen Spider-Man No Way Home. I'm seeing it tonight, which is Thursday night. Hopefully, my heart can handle it and I'll still be alive come Monday. So if you want to talk Spidey, I'm all ears on Twitter and Instagram at Marvel Madams, and I will be putting out an episode on No Way Home after the Hawkeye finale. Now that the Kingpin has returned, you may want to refresh yourselves on his Marvel beginnings, and we've got you covered. If you haven't already, check out our full series on Daredevil Season 1 in our archive. Depending on what happens or what lawyers may show up at the theater tonight and in the Hawkeye finale next week, we might be covering Daredevil season two soon. We shall wait and see. So thank you everyone for joining me today on Chris's Corner and happy holidays to all of you who celebrate. Because Christmas is conveniently on a Saturday and my in-laws are wonderful people who know when to go the hell home, I'll be back next week with my impressions on the Hawkeye finale. Come share your final theories and predictions with me on Twitter and Instagram, again, at Marvel Madams. And check out our website, themarvelousmadams.com, where infinity stones are a girl's best friend.